Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. My, uh, the first church that I pastored was a small church in Joplin, Missouri. And they did, did communion every Sunday. So we'd have music, message, and meditation. And so the way they did the meditation, we'd have kind of a, a more spiritually mature member from the church. They'd kind of circle through a little, little bit of a cycle as who would lead that meditation. It was just meant to be, because we did it every week, a quick little devotional to set communion up, to prepare our hearts and minds for taking communion together. Emphasis on the word quick, two, maybe three minutes. Well, one of the guys that we had do this, wonderful man, just genuine, sincere love for God, but Lord help him, could not understand the meaning of the word quick or short or reasonable. And so whenever he did a communion meditation, it would often be as long as my sermon. And at the time, I was preaching for over an hour every week. So when this guy got up to do communion, he was like, pack a lunch, because you're not leaving anytime soon. At one time, one of our elders, his sister-in-law, came to visit, and she was there for the service, and he, it was a week that he was doing communion. And after the service, she asked him, like, who's that young guy that talked before the preacher got up? Because she just assumed that the older guy that talked for longer was the preacher, which was a reasonable, <laughs> reasonable assumption. What always amuses me, though, when you talk about when teaching for a long period of time, as I say here, I taught for over an hour. You're like, oh, please don't do that again. Oh, please. When I was in Uganda working with local pastors there, they asked, well, how long do you talk at your services? I'm like, I talked for a little over an hour. They're like, oh, that's cute. Nice little little devo, little intro thought. When do you actually get into the sermon, though? Because for them, their context was like they expected three full hours of message when they gathered. And while that doesn't necessarily work in every context, there's something to be said about the beauty of having that kind of hunger for the Word of God, that they would want to gather for three hours to hear it presented. So this week, we're continuing in our series, The Kingdom is Here. Our journey brings us to Nehemiah chapter 8. The good news is we don't have nearly as many verses to unpack as we did last week. We have eight. But these eight verses have a whole lot to say. And so we're going to dive in very quickly because there's a lot of really important stuff to cover in these that we're going to need to spend some time unpacking because these eight verses deal a lot with fundamental aspects that are foundational to the Christian life and to the Christian community. So, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people of God gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. Let's just stop there. Firstly, if you were alive in the 70s, this is not the same water gate, right? But there's two words that we need to draw attention to, or two concepts that we need to draw attention to just from this part of the verse. The first is the indication of unity. Now, this is something that as frequently as it is mentioned in Scripture, we might think or assume is a standard with the people of God. It isn't. In fact, unity, even amongst the people of God, is a rarity. This phrase, as one man, occurs only nine times in the entirety of the Old Testament. 
We see similar concepts mentioned in Acts 2 and Acts 4, but by the time we get to Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira corrupt the community of the church with their selfishness, infusing themselves over the good of the community. And at least throughout the book of Acts, we never really see that full return to the unity of the community that God intended us to have. Yet all throughout the New Testament, we see commissions, challenges, encouragement, even straight-on commands for us to be unified, to be of, of one mind. And yet despite this being a key virtue in the kingdom of God, despite the regular repetition of it throughout the gospel, our default state is disunity. See, we live in a world that uses everything around us to pull us apart and to divide us. See, God in his infinite creativity made us all so very different. Right? We are different people. We come from different places. We have different family dynamics, different experiences. We've had different obstacles and challenges in our lives. We carry different scars and wounds from friends and people that we've trusted that betrayed us. We've had different opportunities. We have different gifts, different challenges, different priorities, different values, different points of view and outlooks on life. We have different in so, so many ways. And if we are not careful, rather than seeing those differences as opportunities to serve one another and to share the gospel in different ways and to, to strengthen and reinforce one another, those differences can very easily become sources of division and means for isolation. You don't know my story. You don't know my life. You can't understand what I've been through, so you can't speak into me. You can't share with me because you don't understand what it's like to be me. And we can use those differences to isolate ourselves or to divide ourselves from others. But there's a beauty to diversity. There's a beauty to the differences that God has wired into us that are by design. Paul talks about the body of the church, the corporate church, and he uses our physical bodies as an example. Saying so you've got eyes, you've got ears, you've got nose, mouth. They all have different functions, and it is only when they're all together that you have a complete body. It is our differences coming together for a common purpose that allows us to be a functional body. And we live in a world that says, you are complete. You are whole. You are all you need. You don't need anybody else. You don't have to be in relationship with other people because you have it all, man. You're the whole enchilada. No. You're awesome. I love you, but no. None of us are a whole enchilada by ourselves. God, when he created man, said it is not good for man to be alone. We were designed for community, and it is very much for the differences, not the similarities, that we are commanded to engage in it. It's one of the fun things about working on a staff like this is we have very different personalities uh, amongst our staff. Pastor Rick and Pastor I, Pastor I, wow. English is fun, and I'm real dumb. So let's pretend that didn't happen. Pastor Rick and myself are very different people. Our theology and our approach to Scripture, eerily similar, but our personalities are very different. Rick is extremely introverted. I am extremely extroverted. Rick is very detail-oriented. I'm very big picture, so we'll be talking and staff meetings and leadership things, and he'll be getting into stuff. I'm like, man, that's a really cool tree. You remember the forest? And then I'll start talking. He'll be like, hey, nice forest, man. You remember the forest is made of trees, right? Yes, that togetherness, that his strength reinforcing my weakness, my strength reinforcing his weakness, that is how community is designed to work. Our differences allow us to strengthen one another so that we can form a strong chain. 
Because each of us has a weakness that's easy to overcome on its own. Every gospel-centered church, every gospel-centered community should seek, should desire, should pursue diversity in our thinking, in our values, in our cultures, in our races, in our politics, in our giftedness. Diversity is a beautiful, God-honoring thing that should be celebrated and desired. Division, on the other hand, is an offense to the Holy Spirit, who works all throughout the book of Acts to unify the people of God under the banner of Jesus, despite all of our differences. See, the problem that we have so often is we, we think that our way is the best way because it's the way that we've chosen to do things, because it's the way that we see it. And we have a tendency to view different as being lesser or inferior. But then what the Bible says in Ephesians 3.28 is there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. The world takes all the differences that exist between us and uses them to try to build walls of division that separate us from one another. The gospel tears those walls down. The Holy Spirit works to tear those walls down. And if the Holy Spirit has torn down a wall, do not be the person that tries to build it back up again. It will not work well for you. Let me be clear, though. What Ephesians 3 does not mean is that we all magically become the same person. It doesn't mean that there's no longer actual distinctions between men and women. There's no longer actual distinctions between experiences and cultures and ethnic groups and different things that they've experienced and lived in their life. It doesn't mean that all that just goes away. No, what Ephesians 3 is saying is that different doesn't mean less. What it means is that all people under God have equal value and worth in the eyes of God. It is not a dismissal of where we have been and what we have been through it is an acknowledgement that we are all of equal value. So this guy over here, right, who hasn't showered in three days, doesn't have two pennies to rub together, and is just struggling to get by because he makes a series of bad life choices, and the guy over here who have started three Fortune 500 companies and is successful in everything he does, in the eyes of God, they are of the same value. Who tends to get more attention when they walk into a church? We get more excited about having on our team. We live in a culture that looks at achievements and says, oh, you've achieved more, therefore you are worth more. Ephesians 3 says, no, we all have equal worth under God. For all the things that would divide us are made insignificant and worthless compared to the blood that unites us. For we are all one of equal value in Christ Jesus because Jesus poured out his blood for the guy who's made a bunch of bad life choices and for the guy who started multiple Fortune 500 companies. And if Jesus shed his blood for both, they are of equal value. See, unity doesn't mean that we all think the same thoughts. Unity means that we as the people of God overcome our differences. We overcome the things that would separate us and pull us apart because we have a common mission, a common purpose, and a common goal to bring glory to God. When the people of God come together for the glory of God in unity, we bring joy to God. The second thing that we need to see in this verse is the word gathered. 
There's been this, it's not a new idea, but over the last 15 years or so, it has grown in popularity and then became extra complicated with the advancements of technology. But the idea is that you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Right? The church is just a building. You can be a Christian from anywhere. You can be a Christian at home. You don't have to engage. You don't have to connect. You don't have to be involved in all that because you don't have to go to church to be a Christian, so I'm just going to stay at home. Right? My relationship with God, that's, an, that's a private thing. That's an independent thing. That's just between me and God. It's got nothing to do with anybody else because you don't have to go to church. And it's just like Adam and Eve in the garden. There's just enough truth to that lie to make it a really effective deception. It is true that the church is not a building. The church is a people. But without getting into too much of a grammar lesson, what is people? It's the plural of person. Meaning, when you're by yourself, you're not people. You is person. One. Together is peoples. Okay? So I was super good at English class, as you can tell. Pastor I. Hmm. <laughs> The amusing thing about the argument is when people say, oh, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian, they're not trying to avoid the building. They're trying to avoid the people in it. But the argument that they're making is wrong because it is the people in it that make the church. It doesn't have to be in a building. We can go outside. It's still church. We can go to a different building. It's still church. But church is the people. In the New Testament, the word for church, ecclesia, means to gather together or to congregate so Jim Bob Jones, sitting at home in his living room, thinking about the mysteries of the universe on his couch in his plaid pajamas, is not having church. Okay, he's a super specific example of a guy sitting in his living room. Okay? To which we go, yeah, I get it. You got to be, with us. well, I got a family. We're all Christians. <laughs> no, you can't gather what's already been gathered. Okay, if you're already living under the same roof, that's not gathering. You're already gathered. Gathering is people from different homes, different places, different communities, different people getting together, okay? To which we say, yeah, but you know what? I, get, I have other Christian friends. We get together. That's church. No, you getting together with your buddies playing Settlers of Catan is not church. Hanging out. That's a reference nobody gets. All right. <laughs> Watching football with your friends is not church. Hey, when you get together with people like, oh, we're going to watch our favorite TV show and maybe we'll have a theoretical, philosophical conversation about the goodness of God in a world with sin. That's not church. Church is the gathering of the people of God for the express purpose of worshiping God and growing in Him. So unless the gathering is built on focused on devoting time to the worship and the word of God. It's not church. You can have church in your home. You bring other people in. You talk about God. You study the word. You worship together. You can have church that way. The early church was very much that way. But church is expressly the people of God gathering together to worship God. What technology has complicated with that is now we have church services online where you can essentially experience a pseudo-community by watching at home without engaging in the personal interactions. And let me be clear, I am not knocking technology. Technology hates me. I don't hate technology. I think technology is really cool. I'm still waiting for the hoverboards from Back to the Future that we were promised, never got. I will fall off it as soon as they make them, but I am waiting. No matter how incredible technology is, and it is in many ways a gift that can do incredible things, one thing technology can and never will be able to do 
is replace the power of physical presence. You cannot gather from separate locations. Gathering is to come together in the same physical location. To which you might say, hey, don't you guys broadcast your services online? Why do you do that then? I am so glad that you have asked this question. We do it for days like today. When weather conditions make it hard or impossible for some to get here so they can still be a part of the service. We do it for times because we know that every week there's going to be somebody in our church family that's sick, somebody who's traveling, somebody who has to work or has something come up where they cannot be here, but they would still like to have the opportunity to engage. We do it because we have people here who have family members who don't live here, and they want to be able to share the services with them. We do it because we have people who used to be here but moved away, but they'd still like to be connected to our community. So if you go onto our website and you click on resources, there's a little drop-down tab that says watch a message, which has archived all of our messages for like five or ten years. And at the beginning of every one of those, you'll see myself, Pastor I, or Pastor Rick, saying, hey, we're so glad that you checked this out. We hope it's a blessing to you. Please don't use this to replace church attendance. Please don't use this to replace being physically present with people because it's not for that. We broadcast our services online to be supplemental resources to help people continue to grow, not as a means to avoid engaging in what is church, the gathering of people. Right? So we don't do this online so you'd be like, I don't know, I just don't really feel like putting on pants. That's not why we do it. It's like, oh, when my couch is right there and the church is really far, uh, my couch is way more comfortable than those seats, I'm just going to, no, that's not why we do it. The word church literally means to gather together. If we are not gathering together in the same place, it's not church. I'm going to camp out here for just a minute longer because this is such an important point for us to understand in our growth and our spiritual maturity. There are so many aspects of the Christian life that cannot be done by yourself. There are so many commands that Jesus gives, so many instructions that he tells us to do that you can't do on your own. There are dozens of passages in the New Testament alone that use the phrase, each other or one another. How do you each other or one another if you're by yourself in your living room? You can't. It requires being around other people. Many, if not all, of the virtues and values of the kingdom of God, of the teachings of Jesus, of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and the fruits of the Holy Spirit are predicated on a foundation of relationship, of being around one another. In fact, the only reason the Bible doesn't express it more clearly is because it is so incredibly assumed that the writers would have thought that expressing it that way would have been insulting to their audience. Think about this. Love, grace, forgiveness, Reconciliation, peace, service, discipleship, unity. Do you know what all these things have in common? They're impossible to do by yourself. Most of what the Bible teaches, we cannot honor and faithfully obey if we are not engaging with one another in worship and in the Word. When the people of God come together, to worship and to glorify him in unity, we have the opportunity to bring joy to the creator of the universe. 
And sadly, it's a joy that he doesn't get very often because unity is a rarity amongst his people. And we're not even out of verse 1. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. So this is a time of, of joyous celebration. After years of living in exile, the people of God finally get to return to Jerusalem, the promised land that God had prepared and given to them so many years ago. Seventy years of exile, of struggle, and of suffering finally coming to an end. Have you ever been, just had one of those days where you just kind of like, I just, I just want to go home? Right? You had like a, maybe it was a really bad day, really long day, just, you know, it's super cloudy outside and you're sleepy. You ever just had that moment? You can put your hands up. It's not a funeral service, guys. It's all right. Maybe you traveled for a long period of time. You've been away from home and you just had this overwhelming sense, like, I just want to go home. You know that feeling? Imagine feeling that for 70 years and not being able to go home. 70 years of waiting, 70 years of anticipating, 70 years of not being able to do that one thing that you want to do. Just go home. And then finally, after 70 years, you get to go back. Can you imagine the relief, the elation, the joy? That would have been the entire city of Jerusalem at this time. But the first thing they want to do after getting back, before they've even finished fully unpacking, the first thing they want to do is hear the word. Because in the beginning, the word formed the world. Then the word formed the nation of Israel. Then the word freed them from their captivity in Babylon. And so now, having finally returned home, the people of God want to lay the foundation of their national revival on the very word that formed them. So Nehemiah also mentions that this is the seventh month. He mentioned that in chapter 7 as well. Anytime the Bible repeats itself, it's usually telling you that what it's about to say is important. The seventh month is a specifically important date, as there are several key events that the people of God were commanded to participate in that occur in the seventh month. The first day of the seventh month is the day of holy convocation. The tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. The fifteenth day of the seventh month is the beginning of the Feast of Booths. You know how we have lots of different holidays, but some holidays get a lot more attention and focus than others? Right? Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving. That's the Feast of Booths. Of all the different events and things that happen in the Jewish calendar year, there were three great feasts that all practicing Jews were commanded and expected to observe. One of them is the Feast of Booths. You know what the primary focus of the Feast of Booths is? The people of God gathering together to read the Word of God. Every year. They had a week-long celebration for the people of God to gather for the express purpose of reading the word so that they might hear it, so that they might know it, so that they might obey it. And before we move on from this, I want to emphasize one little point. Notice how, Mo uh, how Nehemiah describes the law. The law of Moses as commanded by God. Okay, so we get this idea that has become very popular, increasingly so, that we can't fully trust the Bible. We can't truly rely on what it says because it was written by men and therefore it's flawed. That is not the view that the Bible holds of itself. Nehemiah, who writes a book of the Bible, tells us 
that the law of Moses, while penned by Moses, was commanded by God. What he's saying is that it is divine inspiration through human inscription. This book is actually a compilation of 66 different books with over a dozen or so people that contributed to its writing. It has one author. There are a lot of different people whose hands were used to ink the words, but there is one person who wrote it, and that is God. The Bible is the Word of God, which serves as the revelation of God to His people that we might know Him, that we might understand Him, and that we might live for Him. And so the first thing the people of God want to do when they return to their homes, before they've even finished unpacking, is to hear the Word. Here's why this is so important to them. The reason they were exiled in the first place the reason that they suffered for 70 years struggling in captivity in a foreign nation was because they had been unfaithful to the Word of God. They had ignored it. They had neglected it. And as a result, they had suffered from it. So now that they're finally back, they're going, we need to make sure that we get this thing figured out. We need to make sure that we set this as the default characteristic, as the foundation of our national identity. We got the Word wrong, and we were punished. Let's make sure we don't do that again. Verse 3, and he read from it in facing the square before the water gate from the early morning until midday in the presence of men and women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. So, if you notice, the wooden platform was already built. What that means is this was not an impromptu event, this was a goal. What most likely would happen is Ezra and Nehemiah got together and they cast a vision to the people of God while they're rebuilding the wall. They said, hey, we need to get the wall built by this date so that we can get the people back so that we can launch our national revival with the foundation of who we are, which is the people that are built on the word of God. So this was a vision cast. And while they're building the wall, as impressive as that feat was, they're also building this platform to be used. And they get done just in time. So the people are moving back in, and they can start their return home with the Word of God. So the reading of the Word began early morning, that's 6 a.m., and it went till midday, that's noon. So you think uh, an hour-long sermon is a long time? They taught the Bible nonstop for six hours. And what did the people do? It says they listened with attentive ears for six hours. They're not complaining. They're not getting restless. They're not bothered. They're listening intently to the Word of God for six hours. That is the hunger that they had for it, the desire that they had for the Word. They wanted more of it. And it says that men, women, and those who could understand, that's children. It is so incredibly important for children to grow up hearing the Word. This is, in fact, the methodology behind our children's ministry. When you come here on Sunday and you drop your kids off, they are not going to child care. They're going to child classes. They have activities, they have things that they're doing, but every one of them is going to hear a lesson presenting the Word of God in an age-appropriate fashion for them because the Word is important and, set, and setting those seeds in the hearts of children so that they can grow is so important. 
We don't do childcare. We do child classes. But for those of you who are parents, what you need to know is one hour a week is not going to do it. What we offer here is meant to be supplemental and supportive. It cannot take the place of you reading the Bible with your children, teaching the Bible to your children. You may not understand all of it, but they understand more than you think. You have to take the lead on that so that they can grow up hearing the gospel, so they can grow up and break this. You know, statistically, 90% of children that grow up in the church walk away from the faith when they get to college. 90%. But when we teach the Bible, when we read it and we explain it to our children, we can help curve that statistic by rooting the gospel in their hearts early that they might walk in the ways of God without having to wander. Many of the people that wander away come back later in life, but what if we could be a place that curved that so that our children didn't wander, they didn't go down a dark road and have to come back with all these regrets, but that they stayed true to the heart of the gospel that was planted in them. That begins with setting apart the word as a priority in our lives, in in our homes, where it's not just taught here on Sunday morning. Because here's the thing that that frustratingly requires. If you're going to teach the Word of God to your kids, you've got to understand the Word of God well enough to explain it to them when they have questions, and they will have questions. And the beauty of God's design is there's nothing that's going to grow you more in your relationship with Him like preparing yourself to explain His Word to your children. Maybe that's the reason He gives us that expectation. Verse 4. And beside him stood Matthiah, Shema, oh good, a bunch more names. You know, I was, I was really worried after last week with our 61 verses of names that you guys would be really let down by a lack of names. But good news, here's more. Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah, uh, Messiah uh, on the right, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah. I could read these a lot easier when I'm not on a stage with a bunch of lights on my face. Hashem, Habanah, Zechariah, and Melushim on his left hand. I'm so sorry. She has to spell all of these names. Uh, last time I didn't do them just for her, but uh, I had to do them this time. <laughs> and Ezra opened the book, of, the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and he opened it, and all the people stood. So the important thing to note here, besides that there's a bunch of really hard to pronounce names, is that the people stood for the reading of the word. This was an indication of extreme respect or reverence that they had, the value that they had for the word. They stood when it was read. And verse 6, And Ezra Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting their hands. And they bowed their heads and and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Yeshua, Bani, Sherabai, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodai, Masai, Kalita, Azari, Josabad, Hannah, Palal, and the Levites helped the people understand the law while the people remained in their places. And they read from the book of the law of God clearly, and they gave sense so that the people understood the reading. So here's what's happening. Ezra has 13 guys with him, and they're reading the word. And they break it down into sections, and after they get done with one section, they stop And then there are 13 Levites who would walk around the gathered people and explain what the word meant. 
Because there's a difference between knowing what God says and understanding what it means. And it's important for us to do both. Because when we lack the second, it is very easy to take things out of context and to speak for God where God has not spoken for himself. It is important for the people of God not just to hear what the word says, but for us to understand it. And this is why we emphasize groups. See, when you come here on Sunday, you have the opportunity to hear somebody talk and attempt to explain the word. We read it and we attempt to explain it. That's our really very complicated strategy. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what it means. Really deep thought. But you have no opportunity to engage it. You don't have the opportunity to ask questions, to digest it, to discuss, well, what about this or what about that? You don't have the opportunity to get your hands on it and really dive into what it's saying through personal experience and personal seeking to understand. In groups, you do. In groups, you have the opportunity to discuss, to dialogue, to question, and to engage the Word on a different level. And so if you are involved in one but not the other, you are stunting your spiritual growth because you're missing a huge opportunity to grow. But here's their part. What they're doing here for six hours, here's what the Word says, here's what the Word means. It's simple, it's easy, and it's what church is meant to be. The whole purpose of the teaching of the Word was for people to understand the Word of God. However, in growing years, it has become increasingly common for churches to, to shift their focus a little bit. Out of a desire to win a crowd or to draw more people in or not scare people away by, by being too advanced or too complex, there's been an increased focus on attractional messages, topical messages, feel-good messages, you know, 10 ways to live your best life now. That's cool. I'm not saying those are, please understand, I'm not saying that those are bad things. I'm saying that's not what church was meant to be. See, what so often happens, where it starts with a good idea, we want to make sure that we're not alienating people on the surface. What happens is a good idea is all of a sudden, it becomes less about what the Bible says and more about what the guy on stage says. And the less the emphasis of what is being spoken is the word, the more the emphasis is on the one doing the speaking. And then the platform stops being about the kingdom of God, it becomes about the kingdom of the person talking. What do they think? How do they feel? What are their thoughts? And ultimately what it turns into is a really shallow spiritual TED talk with a couple of Bible verses ripped out of context and sprinkled over the top, typically not meaning anything like what the Bible has to say. Church, we deserve better. And it is important that we desire better. Because what we desire is a reflection of our own maturity. The church is meant to be about the Word, not about the one presenting it. If you're looking for my thoughts, you are looking in a really bad place. Because if you know 100 people who have thoughts, 99 of them probably have smarter, better thoughts than I do. Listen to them. Don't listen to me. The value that I have is only what I have to present the Word. Anything that I say of worth is what's coming from the Word. Anything worthwhile that I say is helping understand the Word. If it's me, it's useless. The Word of God is what is powerful transformative and significant. And the endeavor that we have and the goal that we have is not to, to share our thoughts, but it's to help understand the word. Yeah, sometimes our perspectives get involved in that and that is why we say, hey, don't just take our word for it. 
Read it for yourself. Study it for yourself. See if you come to the same conclusion that we have. Because we are flawed. I'm a flawed, messed up human being. Right? The more that people know me, the more they're like, yep, that's right. Preach it. My wife's like, that's the best point you made all day. But the word is what is important. The word is what we should hunger for. The word is what we should desire. It doesn't need fancy decoration. It just needs to be the word. What we desire is a reflection of our maturity. So this last year, uh, we took Rowan trick-or-treating because we love witchcraft. Okay. <laughs> so we dressed him up as a, a Mickey Mouse Roadster Razor, which was a mistake because he was so cute. And I couldn't really focus. And so he's, you know, he's two, so he doesn't fully grasp what he's doing. You're supposed to, like, go up and say trick-or-treat. He just would go up and just, like, take people's candy, put his bin, and run off. And I'm like, my man, I like the way you do this. So now we have this bucket filled with candy. And like responsible parents, we don't let him as a two-year-old eat all that candy in one sitting. So he has this growing collection of sweet treats in a bucket that he asks for all the time. And we still use it because we just keep putting more stuff in it, and it becomes like a reward system for him. So I want something for my bucket. That's... That's what he tells us. I want something for my bucket. And he knows because we've taught him, you get something for your bucket only after you've eaten a full meal. But if we didn't force that on him, he would just fill himself up on the stuff from his bucket. Because he's two. He does not understand that that's not good for him. He does not understand that if he just eats stuff from his bucket, it's going to upset his stomach and he's going to throw up. He doesn't understand that that is unhealthy because those snacks that taste so good have absolutely no nutritional value and are not good for him to grow and to get stronger and to get bigger. I mean, I guess he could get bigger eventually, but not the way he wants to. Sorry. He doesn't He's not mature enough to understand that what he wants is not what's good for him. What he desires is a reflection of what he doesn't know. The problem that happens so often as a church is that we remain like him. Over and over again, we want something from our bucket rather than wanting the hearty meal of the word of God that has been laid out for us. Jesus says, man doesn't live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. But we ought to desire, Paul talks about it, he says, by this time, you guys should be eating meat, but I still have to give you milk. You're not even on solid food yet. As we mature, we start to desire better. Right? Like, look, let me be clear. I like sweet things, right? Sweets are the reason that I don't have abs. I would really like abs, but I like sweets a whole lot more. But when I'm hungry, I'm not looking for a sugar rush. I'm looking for a meal that will satisfy my hunger and give my body the nutrients that it needs to be energized and to function. As we mature, we start desiring better food. So when we're satisfied with spiritual TED Talks that have almost nothing to do with the Bible, it's an okay place to start. But after a little while, we should start hungering for more. We should start longing for better. Because life is in this. Not what I say. The gospel is God's word, not my word. My job is to serve this 
And I'm only as good as I'm faithful in doing so. Everything that we do must be about the Word. Our lives must be built on the foundation of the Word. And it's time for a lot of us to grow to a spot where we stop asking God for something from our bucket. We start learning to make a healthy meal for ourselves. That we might help prepare that meal for others. That we might grow in our maturity and our pursuit because church, the people of God will always hunger for the word of God. The people of God will always love the word of God, not because the word is God, but because the word is from God, because the word is God's love letter to us. And when we love him, we will desire to read it, to know it, to understand it, because when someone loves you, you want to know what they think. You want to know what they say. You want to know them. This is God helping us know him. How can we love him if we're not interested in who he is? How can we say that we love God if we're not interested in better knowing him? So the question, the question that we ought to ask ourselves is, do you have a genuine desire for the word? Do you have a hunger for what God has to say? See, there is, I want to be clear, there is no recipe for revival. But what we see here, the people of God gathering together in unity, the corporate desire to hear the word, and a commitment to understand and follow it. In this case, it led to a national revival. We can't make revival happen because revival happens from the work of God, not from us. But by focusing on these three things, by pursuing these three things, we can position ourselves to be ready for the work that God will do in us and through us. So the question I have for you, that I want to challenge you with, that I want you to wrestle with, is do you have a genuine desire to build your life on the foundation of who God is? Are you here because it's Sunday and that's what you're supposed to do? Is this obligation? Is this just habit? Or are you here because you hunger for the Word? And if it's not that you hunger for the Word, perhaps the reason is that you spoiled your appetite on things from your bucket rather than from the meal that God has prepared. I challenge you, the meal is greater. The meal is better. Desire the meal. You can have something from your bucket after. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you would love us in all of our mess and in all of our brokenness, that you would send your son to give his life so that we could live. God, I pray that you would stir our appetite, that we would be a people with an insatiable hunger for you, that we would crave you above all things, that we would seek you above all things because you are worthy above all things. There is no one and nothing in this world that is like you, and so God, draw our hearts to you that every day we might seek you, that we might pursue you and that our lives will be lived for your kingdom and your glory and may how we live may be pleasing in your sight as we strive imperfectly to follow the perfect example of your son 
We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen.